Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. We as mortals remember in part because we know we will die and our loved ones, people we know, things that we know will die, will pass away. And that demands memory, that summons memory. So there is this interconnection between memory and mortality and the inverse, immortality and forgetting these things. There's no need to remember all these things. If everyone lived forever, if everything lasted forever, then we would not have need for memory. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Mariana Orlandi, Associate Director of the Institute, and today with me is a very young and very promising scholar and also a dear friend, Dr. Rachel Alexander. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for accepting our invitation. I take the liberty during this conversation to call you by name since we spent an entire year together at Princeton and we even shared our office there. We were co-preceptors for Professor George at some point too. So I guess like even though it was the year when COVID hit, I think we still have beautiful memories of, of that crazy 2020, right? Oh, yeah. So Rachel, how about I briefly introduce you and then we get started on the topic of our podcast? Rachel Alexander is a postdoctoral research associate with the Program on Constitutionalism and Democracy and a lecturer in the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia. Her research interests include the history of political thought, classical political philosophy, American political thought, and politics and literature. Her work has appeared in refereed journals such as Perspective on Political Science, Interpretation, and Law and Justice, as well as in popular publications like Law and Liberty. She holds a BA in politics from Washington and Lee University and a master and PhD in political science from Baylor. At Baylor, Dr. Alexander was awarded Baylor's 2019-2020 Outstanding Dissertation Award. She was recently a 2019-2020 John and Daria Berry Postdoctoral Research Fellow in the James Madison Program and Lecturer, as we said, in the Department of Politics at Princeton University. I'd say it's quite an impressive CV, considering you're pretty young. Is there anything I forgot? <laughs> no, that was very generous of you. <laughs> well, I just spoke the truth. And probably what is missing is where are you now and where you're from? I'm originally from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So I'm a Cajun girl at heart. And I'm still I'm visiting family this summer, but we'll be returning to Charlottesville soon. Okay, that's where you're now. And so, Rachel, you, of course, already know that I invited you to our show today to talk about a paper, which is actually a book chapter on Odysseus, on mortality and memory. And the title of that chapter is Memory and Mortality in Homer's Odyssey. I had the privilege of reading a draft of that work, but I know that it's now published. Could you possibly share with us the details of that book? Sure. Yes. So the, the book is a volume titled Political Theory on Death and Dying. And it's a volume of essays on mortality, death, the experience of dying throughout the history of political thought. My chapter, as you mentioned, is on Homer's thought on death and dying, but there are chapters on Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas, Shakespeare, all the way up to a few contemporary thinkers. So there's a chapter on Alistair McIntyre. I think there are 45 total, and it'll be published by Rutledge this fall, late fall. Wonderful. And what made you choose Homer and the Odyssey? Was that assigned to you or was that your choice? I've always loved 
Homer and specifically the Odyssey and really loved teaching it because I think that the predicament that Homer faces, which is that he is a man of adventure and curiosity and he wants to see the world and know the minds of different types of human beings, different soul types in different cities. He yearns for this knowledge and adventure, but he also is on his way home and he wants to journey home. And so the Odyssey presents this tension, this predicament that Odysseus faces. And I think that that's a lot of Americans can relate to that. And in particular, a lot of young Americans, undergrads and young professionals who may have attachments to their home and have loved ones that they someday want to return to, but they also want to go away for college and they want to go live in the city and study abroad and have go to Europe, right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That, that pull them away that are in tension with any sense of home or building a home for oneself or starting a family. You know, those two desires are in tension with one another. So I've always been interested in the Odyssey and teaching this to undergrads. So when the editors of this volume approached me about contributing to it, they gave me a few options. One of them was Homer. And so I knew it was like, this is my chance to write yeah. on Homer. My normal research is on Aristotle, as you know, and ancient Greek political thought. Well, and of course, if you're willing to, we'll have you to talk about Aristotle too. But before we make you promise that, let's stick to the matter and to this particular piece. You have already anticipated some of the thoughts that I would love to hear what you think about these wandering selves that go around the world. But before we get into the deeper part of the topic, also, who is this book for? The audience is broad, so the the book will speak to those in who study political science, to scholars. The chapters are all contributions by scholars of political science or related fields, but I think the aim of the book is to reach a broader audience because, as we always know, but I think in particular over the past year or so have learned, this question of how we approach death and how we deal with death is one that every human being has to face. So... This is not a question only of interest in academia or the realm of scholarship. This is a very universal question and universal topic. So I think the editors of this volume do hope that this will reach a broader audience. Well, we'll be sure to add the link to the book so that people can order it, buy it, depending on when the book will be out and when our episode will be out. But we'll make sure to promote it. And I look forward to reading the rest because, as I said, since I read that draft, and I discuss it with you when we're still in Princeton, I haven't stopped really thinking about the topics that you mentioned in that chapter. And besides the literary relevance, I really think I'm not the only one to see how both memory and mortality, as you mentioned just now, are topics that our contemporary world treats in a very unique way. And by that, I mean that somehow on one end with memory, it seems like we have outsourced it and we've decided to give up on our ability to remember. And on the other hand, it looks like we want to control death as if it were our choice. So in one way, preventing it, and now with the fear, you know, COVID and masking and vaccinating, but like with this fear of living, basically, or control it by accelerating it. So the fact that there is some ancient wisdom that you're bringing up that links the combination of mortality and memory and even marriage, that sounds quite promising if I know our audience, you know, we're, our institute is dedicated to the family. And also I think, and this, you know, just to mention what we do here is quite consistent with the work of the Austin Institute for the theme of our fall semester, which will be time and how, you know, like how do we experience time? What is time? 
But so now let's start from the beginning of your work and just generally what is this chapter in particular about and what are the main theses that you defend in your paper? Yeah, so the Odyssey, when Odyssey opens, we find Odysseus on Calypso's island. Calypso is a goddess who is holding him captive on her island for years. And he's longing to see Ithaca, his home. He's straining to see his fatherland, his homeland. And Homer tells us, or the narrator tells us, longing to die. So he's weeping, trying to see his homeland and longing to die. We soon find out that he's longing for these things in the face of an offer of deathlessness or immortality by Calypso. Calypso promises him if he will stay with her on her island, she will give him immortality, which presumably would entail divine knowledge, would entail knowledge, kind of knowledge that only the gods can access. So she promises him agelessness, eternal youth. She will make him ruler of his household. These all seem like very enticing things. So the question I guess I start off with is why is it that Odysseus rejects this offer? Why does he long to die, which he longs to be human, to embrace his mortality and not to become like a god, not to be immortal with Calypso? And my thesis is that his choice to remain mortal and to return home to Ithaca is bound up with his love of his own, his love of his home, of his wife, of his son. But my argument is that it's also bound up in his love of knowledge, which may seem counterintuitive because his rejection of the offer of immortality entails a rejection of some kind of divine knowledge that he would be able to access. But his embrace of mortality, his embrace of being human, also entails an embrace of his memory, of his identity his memory of his own, of belonging to a particular community, belonging to a particular family, and his knowledge of that human experience of love that entails the suffering of mortals. So my thesis is that all of those things, mortality, our memory, our love of our own, and our desire to know are actually bound up together. Yeah, I really like this idea that memory is linked to our identity. And I know that one of the terms for the wanderer of Odysseus is polutropos. I think you wrote it's like many turns, the word is like many places, but it could also be probably many identities, right? And he's the one that is very good at disguising himself. But even before going to the identity thing, how and why, and I know you mentioned this in your paper, why is his pursuit of knowledge and how, based on the text, a threat to memory? Like, how do you see that there is a contrast there? Right, yeah. And so for readers of the Odyssey, you'll remember that the threat to Odysseus's memory and the memory of his comrades is a recurring theme in the Odyssey. So it often happens, and usually it happens that Odysseus is the one who remembers and has to rein in his comrades. But he and his comrades encounter the lotus eaters and the lotus eaters offer his companions this fruit that is pleasant, but causes them to forget about homecoming, forget that they are headed home. And so Odysseus has to force them, compel them to leave the lotus eaters. This kind of thing happens again and again when he encounters Circe, another goddess. She also gives potion to his comrades that causes them to forget about home and to turn into pigs. So there you again see the connection between memory and identity. They lose their memory and their identity as human beings. So this is a constant throughout the Odyssey. And 
I argue that is connected to Odysseus's pursuit of a certain kind of knowledge, a kind of knowledge that is a knowledge of the root of things, that is a knowledge of, as the sirens say, advertise at a certain point, the knowledge of all sides of things. The sirens promised Odysseus knowledge of all sides of the participants in the Trojan War. And this kind of many-sided knowledge is at odds with the knowledge we have as human beings of our own experiences, our memory of living through time, which is necessarily subjective. It is from our lived experience and our point of view. And so it is one-sided, which is not to say that we don't have access to other points of view or other sides of reality or that we do not have access to reality. But I think that in the Odyssey, we see these two types of knowledge that Odysseus is pursuing, the kind of knowledge that would uproot beings and things versus a kind of knowledge that entails planting roots and remaining rooted in one's identity and where one comes from. This is fascinating, Gretchen. It just makes me think that, you know, somehow we have different ideas of if we can define a human person as an unencumbered self. But it sounds like that it's precisely if we live in the world and we start learning or we keep learning as if we were unencumbered selves, that's when we get lost. And instead, a pursuit of knowledge that is rooted in who, and even admits the limits, right, of who we mm -hmm. are, is a knowledge that is instead human. And by human, I mean a, a good knowledge. But There's also a joke here that we could all make that we all have the impression that the more we learn, the more it sounds like we are forgetting everything that we learned before, <laughs> right? So, but I don't think that that's where Homer is going with this, but that's probably also a feeling that we all have that it sounds like, wow, the more I read and the more I feel like, hmm, I don't remember enough. But when Odysseus decides to leave Circe and so to abandon immortality, he is sent to, wait, now I pronounce it in the Italian way, Hades. How'd you say it in English? Hades? Hades. Hades. Okay. Ade. All right. It goes there. It's like in a hell. Well, it's not actually hell. It's where all the dead souls are because we are not mm -hmm. in a Christian vision of the afterlife. But what does Odysseus learn about death and memory there? Right. So when Odysseus's comrades remind him in Circe's estate about the object of their journey say like, you know, possessed man, don't you remember, we need to go home. Remember Ithaca. So tell Circe to let us go. So Odysseus goes to Circe. She says, okay, I will give you directions. But first you have to go down to Hades and you have to speak with Tiresias, the Theban seer, who will tell you about your journey, about your next steps. And so he goes down to Hades. But before he speaks to Tiresias, These other souls come to speak with Odysseus. And the first soul that he encounters is Elpenor, uh, one of his friends who he didn't even realize had died. Because Elpenor, the last night that Odysseus and all his pals are visiting Circe, they all get drunk. And Elpenor falls asleep on the roof. And when he wakes up, he falls off the roof and dies. So Odysseus hadn't even realized this happened until he goes on it to Hades. He meets Elpenor and Elpenor begs him, remember me, give me a proper burial. Don't forget about me. So this, I think, highlights the connection between our memory and our mortality. And that connection is that 
we as mortals remember in part because we know we will die and our loved ones, people we know, things that we know will die, will pass away. And that demands memory, that summons memory. So there is this interconnection between memory and mortality and the inverse, immortality and forgetting these things. There's no need to remember all these things. If everyone lived forever, if everything lasted forever, then we would not have need for memory. I know that you can't proceed because he's meeting other interesting figures there, but I just wanted to say that I loved when you mentioned that, quote, if things do not pass away, there is no need to remember them. That That's the way you, that, I think there's something very beautiful and very deep there. So we remember things that will not last forever. And yeah, and again, you know, without outsourcing our memories today, maybe we are losing something there. So who else does he meet when he's in Hades? So one of the next figures he meets is his mother, Anticlea, who has, we're told, died out of grief for Odysseus. She's grieved the loss of her son to such an extent that she no longer willed to live. It's not suggested that she directly committed suicide, but she died out of grief. And so she is in Hades. And Odysseus, of course, wouldn't have known that until he sees her down there. And so this raises a host of questions for our thesis as well, because Anticlea, of course, was attached to her memory of Odysseus. She did not forget about Odysseus. And it seems like this memory was an obstacle to her living, what did eventually cause her to die. But Anticlea... Also, in this scene, we hear about how Laertes, Odysseus's father, is doing. Laertes has not died. He does grieve the loss of Odysseus. And so we have an image, we're given an image of Laertes who spends his days on his estate at their home, his and Anticlea's and Odysseus's home in Ithaca. And he grieves as he sleeps on the ground. He's very much still in grieving the loss of Odysseus, but he has not succumbed to death. And so the reader is pushed to question, why did Anticlea's grief kill her? And why has Laertes's grief not killed him yet? And I think there's a suggestion of an answer in the description of Laertes's time he spends in the orchards, the beautiful orchards that he has on his estate. When the trees start to bloom, Laertes moves outside of his house and he sleeps under the trees. And these trees are actually significant signs of his relationship to Odysseus because at the very end of the Odyssey, when Odysseus comes back to visit his father, after he has seen Penelope, of course, and his son, he comes back to visit his father and his father doesn't believe at first that it's him. So to prove that it's him, he says, remember all of these trees that you planted for me. And he counts them all and he recounts the names that he and his father had given to the trees. I thought this was so beautiful when I realized this connection because it suggests to me that Laertes in his grieving, but not an unbearable grieving, his grieving Odysseus outside in the orchards as the trees are blooming. This suggests that these trees were a reminder to him of the fullness of his home with Odysseus. And that he had more to live for, even if at the time he thought that Odysseus was dead, that he had lost his son and his wife, there was more of a home, more of a community for him to live for. So I think that's another thing Odysseus learned when he goes down to Hades is not just the connection between memory and mortality, but he learns 
about that memory can serve as a support for life, that it doesn't have to be this overbearing cause of pain. Yeah. Right. Yeah, this is absolutely fascinating, you know, and thinking how there are different ways to mourn because grief will be, you know, and pain is part of our life, which is probably what we're trying to avoid from the picture I was seeing at the beginning. We try to keep that as something we can control or that it doesn't really exist. But we all have evidence of how people actually survive the bad things that happen in life, right? And it's not because they don't care, but it's because there are different ways to mourn. And on this note, I want to try to deal with you, Rachel, because you're a friend, something that I never did before. So bear with me and you've not been told what it is, but I would like to read something with you. And it's a passage from C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. Maybe you thought about it as you were writing about this mother, but is the moment where in the afterlife is, there is like this ghost, there is one of the ghosts is this ghost of a mother, Pam, and there is an angel talking to her. So I would like you to read the angel part where it starts here, and then I'll do the mother part and we'll see what is it that maybe C.S. Lewis learned from Homer's Odyssey or just came up with it on his own, but it talks basically about the same thing. Okay. Pam, Pam. No natural feelings are high or low, holy or unholy in themselves. They are all holy when God's hand is on the rain. They all go bad when they set up on their own and make themselves into false gods. My love for Michael would never have gone bad. Not if we'd lived together for millions of years. You're mistaken, and you must know. Haven't you met down there mothers who have their sons with them in hell? Does their love make them happy? If you mean people like Guthrie, woman, and her dreadful Bobby, of course not. I hope you're not suggesting, if I had Michael, I'd be perfectly happy, even in that town. I wouldn't be always talking about him till everyone hated the sound of his name, which is what Winifred Guthrie does about her brat. I wouldn't quarrel with people for not taking enough notice of him and then be furiously jealous if they did. I wouldn't go about whining and complaining that he wasn't nice to me because, of course, he would be nice. Don't you dare to suggest that Michael could ever become like the Guthrie boy. There are some things I wouldn't stand. What you have seen in the Guthries is what natural affection turns to in the end if it will not be converted. It's a lie. A wicked, cruel lie. How could anyone love their son more than I did? Haven't I lived only for his memory all these years? That was rather a mistake, Pam. In your heart of hearts, you know it was. What was a mistake? All that 10 years ritual of grief, keeping his room exactly as he'd left it, keeping anniversaries, refusing to leave that house, though Dick and Muriel were both wretched there. Of course they didn't care. I know that. I soon learned to expect no real sympathy from them. You're wrong. No man ever felt his son's death more than Dick. Not many girls loved their brothers better than Muriel. It wasn't against Michael they revolted. It was against you, against having their whole life dominated by the tyranny of the past. And not really even Michael's past, but your past. You are heartless. Everyone is heartless. The past was all I had. It was all you chose to have. It was the wrong way to deal with the sorrow. It was Egyptian-like embalming a dead body. Thank you. Well, I hope our audience appreciated it. Have you thought about this as you were writing your chapter? Did you think about C.S. Lewis' mother? I actually had not, but that is a striking parallel yeah. to what Anticlea 
has experienced. Yeah, I would be curious to know if one of the chapters of your book will be about this. You know, I've read this many years ago and it always stayed with me. And I think it's very much related to what you are describing, you know, and this ways of mourning. And of course, we all mourn, but there are some attachments that do not need to develop in that way when they will face uh, suffering and, and pain. Let me go now to the love of his own, right? So the love of his family. I know that the mother of Odysseus, when they meet, she says that with what he has learned, he has to share it with his wife. What do you make of that? Like, what is this sharing about? Yeah, I was about to bring that up because it does seem like to do Anticlea justice, she does teach Odysseus she seems to have learned from her own mistaken grief, not that the grief was mistaken, but mistakenly overbearing, overwhelming, killing grief. And so one way in which we see this is she tells Odysseus after he tries to hug her, he tries to embrace her, but of course she is a spirit. She doesn't have flesh that he can embrace. She tells him, go back, return to the light, go back to Ithaca Remember these things. Remember what you've seen here. Remember, in other words, your encounter with death, with mortality. And remember these things, not just for your own sake, remember them so that you can share them with your wife. So here we see a connection between mortality and memory and a love of one's own, that our awareness that we will die, that we are limited beings who will age and pass away, can serve to points us towards love and friendship. So we are, as mortal beings, vulnerable, we are needy, and this directs us towards friends and political communities that can help us to live and to live well while we can with the limited time that we have. And so I think that's what Anticlea's advice is showing us is that Odysseus needs to not only recognize his limits, his mortality, face that and embrace it, but he needs to embrace his own, embrace his family and his wife so as to live well with the limited human means and resources that he has. That's so, so beautiful, Richard. I think you'd like, if we were immortals, we wouldn't need friends and relationships as we actually do. It makes me think of a story that I think we will analyze next semester through our programming that is The the Immortal by Borges and where he describes the way the immortals live and it's absolutely not a happy, it's not a happy place and it's not a happy life, but there is also a link to Homer. I just want to, you know, say it now, but not go deeper into it because it's just a beautiful thing to read. About this, you know, you mentioned it at the beginning that at the end of the Odyssey, there will be this examination of Laertes of Odysseus that like making sure that it's him. But that's not the only test. There are mm-hmm. other tests. I remember also, as you mentioned, that Odysseus wants to be sure that Penelope is remembering him. Like, he wants it to be the case. So he's going to test her too. And probably more than the memory of the love. But then there is a test of the wife of Penelope. So could you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. So this is one of the things Odysseus asks Anticlea when he goes down to Hades. Tell me about my wife. <laughs> you know, what is she doing? Has she taken up with any of the other suitors? I mean, he's worried. He really wants to know about Penelope. And I mean, this indicates obviously that he doesn't 
know everything about Penelope. She is, and this is one of the beautiful and difficult things about any friendship and especially any marriage is that your friend or your spouse is your own in a way, but they are other. They are totally other. And you cannot know because we are humans with limited human knowledge, we cannot know their mind completely. And so this, (laughs) (laughs) right. But yeah, this is, this is a good thing for Odysseus in many ways, but one being that as we've discussed, Odysseus is a curious man. He wants to know. This is what has prompted his 10-year voyage after the 10-year Trojan War. He wants to know about the Cyclops. He wants to investigate all these cities and these different mines that he doesn't know. And so when faced with this predicament, it seems like he has to choose between this life of pursuing knowledge, of fulfilling his curiosity, choose between that on one hand, and this is also might entail immortality. He's got this offer of immortality. And on the other hand, a life of mortality and with his own. So the question is, does it mean, does his return to Ithaca and his embrace of mortality mean that he has to give up on his inquiry of the unknown, give up on his pursuit of knowledge? And we see in his marriage to Penelope that there's plenty for him to investigate that he doesn't know in his own, in his family. And when he arrives to Ithaca, he wants to disguise himself first with the help of Athena so that he can test not only his city to see how is everyone acting, how is everyone behaving 20 years after he, the ruler of Ithaca, has left, but he in particular wants to test his wife's faithfulness. Has she taken up with one of the suitors? How is she managing the household? And so he goes to his home dressed as a beggar to observe the suitors who are looting his house, his son, and his wife. And Penelope has not only successfully deflected the suitors for all these years, although it's getting very difficult to do so, but she has done so with her own cleverness, with her own wiliness. So we see that she is a good match for Odysseus in her own Waving in the day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so Penelope passes Odysseus's tests and Penelope also tests Odysseus. So when Odysseus fully unveils who he is, he conquers, finishes his conquer of the suitors. Penelope says, well, hold on. She asks one of her maidservants, why don't you set up, uh, I need to talk to my husband, I need to talk to Odysseus, and why don't you go and set up our marriage bed outside the chamber for him to sleep? He's going to sleep outside of our bedroom for this first night. And Odysseus immediately- After 20 years, after 20 20 years, years. (laughs) he's the least, right? (laughs) Odysseus is so indignant. He's hurt. He's angry because he knows that their marriage bed is built around this tree, this deeply rooted tree. And so if it can be moved outside of their chamber, then that must mean that some other man has cut the post, cut the tree, tying their marriage bed down. And of course, that's not the case. Penelope brought this up to test Odysseus himself, to test his faithfulness and his memory. Does he remember this fact about their marriage bed? Yeah, I found also beautiful that in all this test about memory, it's always about actions. It's not memory of, you know, things said or books read or, but it's things done together. 
So I don't know if there is anything to that to think about. But before I let you go, this has been incredible. And I, I invite everyone to read more, you know, your chapter, the other chapters must be, it's a fascinating topic. But the last thing that I wanted to ask you is the ways to pursue knowledge. It sounds to me, at least Homer suggests, a sort of a different way in which there we have the wanderer and then we have the circumspect. Mm. Do you think that this speaks of, you know, different talents maybe or different ways to approach knowledge? It's a really good question. Yeah, I do think, I mean, and this is part of my thesis or part of what I wanted to get at in this essay, in this chapter, is that I think we do often associate the pursuit of knowledge with this kind of wandering far from what we already know. Pursuing knowledge means pursuing the foreign, what's absolutely foreign to us. And I think Penelope's mind, her clever use of her mind, all within this one house that she stayed in for 20 years, suggests that there is part of what's beautiful about being human is that there is a lot to pursue, a lot of knowledge to pursue through engaging others' minds through dialogue, which is a different mode of exploration. It doesn't require leaving behind everything you know, but it requires being curious about the people that you know, but you're never going to know exactly what they think about everything because humans aren't fully predictable in that way. We have freedom and we have choice always. So I think Penelope's circumspect mode of knowing is this other mode of knowing that requires listening, requires perhaps a more cautious approach to the pursuit of knowledge than Odysseus's boisterous traveling does. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And it somehow it speaks to me about the two ways, you know, we all have two hearts, two minds, and like how we should always remember, you know, to balance our ways, right? So we do need to explore we do need to take on new risks and I should be silent off the wanderer part. But at the same time, right, we should always remind ourselves of the importance of staying, staying meditation in many cultures and religions, right? And going deeper and rereading and rethinking and pausing in order to actually know. But at the same time, if we believe, A, that we are relational animal and dependent animals, it's and perhaps complementary in our being male and female, there is something to this knowledge that is even more solid within a family than it is as we, as solitary selves. One other way of looking at these two modes of pursuing knowledge or pursuing the unknown is a disease is it's very action-based. And Penelope's, we might compare to a liberal arts education, <laughs> which entails reading things that we know or we think we know, reading our past, our tradition, but it, approaching it as a foreigner, attempting to approach it as someone who doesn't know, who genuinely wants to know more deeply, what does it mean to be human? In a way, we all know what it means to be human because we are, we're doing it, but it's more complicated than that. These human questions can be plunged throughout your lifetime. Better together than alone, again. So this, you know, also for this reason, the past months have not been that easy, but they gave us time to think. And perhaps now we're more willing to read and to engage with the wisdom of the past on topics that 
are eternal. But for now, I want to thank you very much, Rachel, Dr. Alexander, for your time with us. And I do look forward to reading the entire volume. And I also look forward to having you here, maybe with other stories for the next time. I would love that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.